Subtext and Discourse, a podcast which takes you behind the scenes of the art world with the unique individuals involved in the field. I'm your host, Michael Dooney, co-founder and director of independent contemporary arts-based Jarvis Dooney. I hope that everyone is keeping healthy and coping with the corona quarantine. In Berlin, we're preparing for a soft start with various services resuming this week, including select year groups at a number of schools. Fingers crossed it all goes well. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Laura Hirnvi, who since 2015 has been the director of the Finland Institute Germany. As you may have guessed, the Institute is dedicated to the promotion of art and culture from Finland, but also academia and business in the German-speaking world. Laura herself has a German-Finnish background, so we speak a little about her two cultural identities and how that set her on the path to becoming director of a cultural institute. The outbreak of COVID-19 has obviously disrupted the programming at the Institute, causing many events and activities to be postponed. In response, they have increased their online presence, the results of which I've listed in the show notes of this episode. So without further delay, I present my interview with Laura Hienvi. There's 17 Finnish institutes. 17 Finnish institutes. One of them is actually in Finland, (laughs) (laughs) but the other ones are around the world. Tokyo, New York, Beirut, but the majority in Europe. Okay. Also, there's not one in the US or in Australia? or In the US, it's in New York, but it's not responsible for the whole US. It's actually yeah. just for New York and very focused what they're doing. Yeah. But in Berlin, oh, is it just one in Germany? In Germany, exactly. That's just us. And we are responsible also for Austria and for Switzerland. So. Oh, right. Okay. So it's like with the different embassies. Because I think some of the embassies often will share a few countries. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I think especially when you have smaller countries, you always have to keep in mind that Finland has you know, a bit more than 5 million inhabitants. And then you don't have yeah. just the resources to keep up too many of these institutions. In our case, it works, I think, to have the different countries that are having and sharing all the same language in our case. So we all speak of the German-speaking countries. Yeah. If I remember correctly, you were the first German-Finnish person to work at the Institute or to direct it. Exactly. To direct it. Exactly. I don't actually know, thinking of the history of our team. I mean, I have both nationalities. I grew up in Germany, then lived in Finland. I have both cultural backgrounds, but I'm the first, I think, at least as a director, the first who is, so to say, bicultural yeah did you where did you spend most time then are you more Finnish or more German (laughs) that's the typical question (laughs) that you always get and I love to answer it when I was a teenager I knew that people are going to ask it um, when I reveal that I'm half Finnish that's what you usually say you know I'm half Finnish half German and then they say yeah but I mean percentage wise you know there was a time that people always wanted to know if you had to say it how many percent are you Finnish and and how many German and when I lived in Germany I always felt more Finnish yeah it was this nice escape the Finnish identity is very exotic <laughs> the language is very funny and they're mainly positive things that people associate at least in germany with oh, finland yeah. so i love to have this other identity i could escape to when i felt oh this german identity you know like i don't want to identify with it but then when i moved to finland for a year after i graduated here from school from the gymnasium 
And I lived in Finland and of course I realized very quickly, well, I'm rather German in many yeah. ways, you know, <laughs> and you become more German when you are there. And it was also the running gag, you know, dead German living upstairs in a house or is yeah. the German around? And it's always this combination of, of having these different cultural backgrounds and at the same time always the challenge of not going into this. The Germans always do it like that. Yeah. And the Berlin people, you know, like so who that's that's tricky but were you from or did you grow up in berlin or a different part of germany no i grew up in mannheim and uh, actually not directly in mannheim but rather a very small suburb of mannheim countryside style where we had lots of fields and woods around southern germany growing up there 20 years living there then going for one year to finland then coming back for studying in berlin for two years going to india for an exchange year oh wow okay yeah. So you, for a whole year you were in India? I was a nine months in India or 10, I think, altogether. I studied cultural anthropology uh, at the Freie Universität Berlin. And for one reason or the other, it's more coincidence than really having planned of studying Hindi. You had to study one non-European language. And so I ended up studying Hindi. Really? Wow. Yeah. Can you speak any? Well, I mean, like, I think I can do great translations of short stories yeah. uh, when I have a dictionary next to me. By now, all the Bollywood movies, because they speak also so much English, English in between. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is, when I went to India and I thought the purpose of it was to actually practice some Hindi, but everybody's speaking, of course, so well English there. Yeah. So when I said, Namaste, Miranam, Laura, hey, yeah. hello, my name is Laura. They were like, oh, great, you speak Hindi. So let's switch to English now. And I was yeah. like, oh. So I suppose it's the same for a lot of us when we come to Germany. As yeah. soon as you make, you mispronounce a word a little bit, and mm -hmm. say, oh, no, we can switch to English. Yeah. It's nice. I'd like to practice my English. That is really a challenge, I think, when it comes to languages that, you know, when I'm at the Italian restaurant, not that I would speak any <laughs> Italian, but all my <laughs> phrases I have. And then you are lucky sometimes. And I have this one Italian we always go to, and they really practice with the whole family. They yeah. practice the Italian. But then there are others who are like, oh, God, always these German people who think they can speak Italian, and then they throw in their sentences. Yeah. So languages is a complex thing. Do you speak was, any other languages? Oh, I I studied, you know, th not thousands, but I studied all these Spanish, Swedish, uh, Latin I had in school, uh, French, of course. But that's the thing with languages. There are some people who are super talented with languages. And if they studied from one year, they get it. But in order to really make the switch from understanding a language, I think you really have to be there a bit longer. And I always remember when I went to Chicago, I was 17 and my mom had arranged that I could stay with a cousin of hers, you know, who lived in Chicago for some time and coming there and not really understanding and speaking English that fluently. And then you out of a sudden come and you get that switch moment that you really do understand everything. That's a great moment with languages. But to get that, you have to invest heavily and yeah. you have to, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think when the time was for me that the penny dropped or whatever it was that mm -hmm. I felt the kind of switch. But I remember when I was learning it intensely here mm -hmm. and people would ask me, have you dreamt in German yet? Yeah. I've, but have you dreamt in yeah. German? Yeah, you I have. have. I have to say, I mean, like, that's another question that people keep on asking me. And I can't say until today, I can't answer in what language I dream. I don't know. I really don't. Yeah. You don't have conversations with people? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> it's just action dreams. <laughs> But languages are, I mean, like that's when you study, you know, cultural anthropology and we study culture. And that's why we had to study Hindi is that, of course, languages are the key to people and to cultures to understand cultural concepts. For example, in the Finnish language, we don't have or they don't have, however you want to phrase it. 
they don't have this distinction between she and he. Oh, they don't, really? No, they just say han, as in it went to school. And then you have to understand from the context whether it's a girl or a boy, for example. Oh, okay. So would that be the, I'm just trying to think now. The different articles change, I suppose, or the endings of the words. Yeah, I mean, like, if you say han many kolon, she or he might be went to school and you can't tell from that sentence whether it's a boy or a girl okay. you need to understand and have the whole context behind it and in a way it's very gender neutral then another thing in the finnish language you have this possibility of the german sitzen that we have in german this very strong still culture of what is in english if you have to say oh like the formal and informal yeah exactly yeah i think we don't the way that it's so clear and i remember in school when we did japanese mm -hmm. that they had the official or herflish way of saying certain things and then the neutral casual way of saying things mm -hmm. i mean we definitely have a distinction in english if you're writing a letter or if you're doing something that you have business English or correspondence English and a lot of words that you wouldn't use or how you formulate your sentences. But it's difficult because a lot more of it is just that that's how you should do it and that's not how you should do it. There's no definitive if you use this word, then it's formal. And if you use that word, it's informal. Like a lot of it's inferred. I think after learning more German and then interacting with more people that speak English as a second language, I really appreciated how English is easy to learn, but really difficult to master because it is so nuanced. And so we use so much indirect speech that if you're coming from a language where the speech is very pragmatic and they say exactly what something is, mm -hmm. then you go to English like, I, I don't get it. Like, what did you say? Do you want me to do this? Do you not want me to do this? I, I don't understand. Like, what? <laughs> Yeah. So going back to the studies of cultural anthropology, I guess you didn't start immediately at the Finnish Institute in the directoral role. How is your, I guess, your progression? Mm -hmm. After India, after having spent time there and after also having lived in Berlin, I felt really exhausted by all these people, you know, and I felt it's time to go to Finland to yeah. <laughs> see less people. And that's, of course, an ideal place for that. And I ended up in the middle of Finland in Uvaskulam. There I graduated and did my master's. Then I had the opportunity to also do my PhD in ethnology, and I studied the Sikh migrants in California and in Finland. It was a comparative study with fieldwork in California and in Finland, in Helsinki mostly. And I did my, my PhD there, and my initial plan was to stay in academia, do my postdoc, which I also started. I did research on the impact that Finnish contemporary artists have on the city of Berlin and vice versa, how Berlin as a city is reflected in their art world or in the art, in their paintings, in the, yeah. the kind of art they do. But I realized at that point already that academia is... In a way, it's great. You have the opportunity to really engage super deeply and with lots of material and books into topics that you are interested in and that you feel by researching them, you bring new knowledge, for example, to society that in the long run will help all of us understand each other, for example, better, as in the case of my PhD study, the research I did. That was motivated by that. But it was also a bit slow, you know, like when you write an article, you do the research and you do the literature research then you write the article and then it's already two or three years. You send yeah. the article in. It takes another one year at least, maybe if it's a good journal, two years to get feedback. And so until it's published, it's six years gone. Wow. And okay. then you have maybe if it's a very niche topic you're studying, you never know how many people are actually reading your research and I still do believe in the long run all this research that is done there is super important 
But for me, it felt I would like to see more immediate reactions, a bit faster pace um, in the way of working. I have to say another kind of dream job was always for me when I started studying. I always had this vision of becoming either professor in, in, in the university. There was one kind of goal or then another one of the other kind of jobs that interested me were these cultural institutes. In Germany, you have the Goethe Institutes mm -hmm. and then in Finland, you have the Finnish Institutes. So I knew that the Finnish Institute has a turning leadership and I watched out for, you know, when the job opening was and I felt when I read the job opening that I really fulfill many of the requirements they mm -hmm. have. I applied and mm -hmm. got the job. Has been now five years, a bit more than. Oh, really? Wow! For some reason, I had in my mind that the periods that you could that you stayed there, but I'm probably thinking of the different embassies and places where they switch the diplomats every two or three years. Yeah, in our case, the initial first period was three years, mm -hmm. and now I'm in my second term, mm -hmm. and that's another three years. It ends in the end of this year. Can you renew it? Can you stay for longer? Or no, we have this kind of system that it's thought to have maximum amount that is already the six years is I think the longest so far and anyone stayed the others have usually had this three plus two yeah and in our case or in this case we arranged it differently three plus three and I think it's a good time to actually get into the topic working at the institute and into establishing the networks you need in Germany in order to actually get things done yeah and that has been the last two three years really nice to see that when you invest in the beginning into establishing good networks that you actually get the results out of it and yeah. that now it's not so much me touring through Germany and making advertisement for the kind of collaborations we could do. Now it's really vice versa that some contacts we work together with already in 2017, for example, the Weserburg in Bremen. We did a great show there with the Dimo Mietinen collection, uh, Dreamaholic. And now they came back and said, we like working together with you. And we always had this idea of doing something with Elena Broderus. And so now they're doing another show and we are involved again. Yeah. And that's a nice follow up. Yeah, definitely. No, I think when we first met, which would have been maybe halfway through your first mm -hmm. tenure there. Yeah, you definitely have a talent for meeting people, bringing them together. If I think about all the other cultural institutes in Berlin, I have the strongest connection to the Finnish Institute. Although coming from the other side of the world and living in Berlin, I really have almost nothing to do with Finland. Except now the Finnish artists that I've got to know and then our connection through also collaborating. And we had the show with Maya Tami a few years ago. From a cultural institute perspective, I know more about the contemporary art side of things. And I think a few years ago, it was one about housing or something like that, I think that you did. And then there was 100 years Finland. Like, what is the, I guess, how does it come together? Is mm -hmm. there a specific focus? Do the heads of all 17 institutes come together and say, okay, this is what we're going to do this year? Well, I think the unique thing about these 17 Finnish institutes is that they all have their different founding history, you know, like they have their own logos that tells a lot. So every institute has an own foundation behind it and every Finnish institute is a little bit different. So you might have, for example, the institute in Rome that is really just there for research. They have a great Villa Lante, they have a great villa there and they do mostly research, archaeology, uh, historical research, for example. 
Then in our case, the Finnish Institute in Berlin has been there now for more than 25 years. And we are one of the institutes that is there for culture, but also for academia research. And then we are, as I said, we are not only there for Germany, also for Austria, Switzerland. So uh, it's quite yes. a wide area. And when I started, I thought like, wow, you know, we have about five to six people working here. Then we have average three interns. And that's quite a huge area that we should work with. Yeah. I mean, region-wise, but also in the topic of culture, everything. When I started, so I, I said, okay, wow, we have this limited kind of resources um, when it comes to people, when it comes to money. And then we have this region that is really big. Yeah, and then we have also culture as a whole, we have science as a whole. So we need to kind of maybe focus a little bit, focus in the sense of rather do some areas for a certain period of time. For example, with music, we had for two years really a focus on music together with Music Finland, another institution in Finland. So we really focused on promoting music, especially jazz in Germany. The thing is, as I started to say, you know, like in German, you need the networks, you need credibility in these networks and you can't just, I mean, of course you can have a concert here and reading there, but there will be no resonance, there will be no echo. That's why we decided that we will focus on certain regional areas as well. Like Vienna, for example, was last year one of these areas that we really lay focus on And in a way that we said as a city, you know, like uh, we were partner land of the Vienna Design Week. Then we were for the first time involved Buch Wien, a fair for, for literature there. So we really try to go into a city or region, not just with one small event, but rather thinking of, okay, let's try to have an emphasis on this area for a year or for two. And then we get hopefully media visibility and people get an awareness for that. There are also cool things coming from Finland. Yeah, definitely. I'd heard about the partnership with the design fair and then I thought, okay, maybe there's an interest in design or a focus on design within Vienna. So that's our focus there rather than saying we need to build an audience and we need to develop our presence in Vienna. So let's hit it from every possible angle. Exactly. So with music and with literature yeah. and with art. And then always taking in also in Vienna, for example, we work together with the embassy, the Finnish embassy there, because we can't be there all the time. Mm. But we have good connections with them, so we collaborate. And that's one of the challenges is that when you want to work with people, you have to be somehow present. And yeah. it's that's kind of the thing. It's not enough to call somebody and say, hi, I'm Laura <laughs> here from Berlin. You know, like we do really great things. No, you have to have the network first and as you can't build networks in every region and in every area you have to make some strategic choices and you have to say okay now let's focus on music or then contemporary art for example was a new focus for us and this was one of the areas that we said okay let's build up systematic networks let's learn and understand who would be interested in working and collaborating with us and we learned very quickly that museums are way too big their schedules are running five years ahead and they don't really need us as well. But Kunstvereine and Kunsthallen, for example, in Germany, they were really open to all kinds of collaborations. So we started working together with them. And I think that is what has changed maybe from when I started, we did everything everywhere. 
And I felt this was throwing a lot of drops on hot stones that we are not really having a sustainable long-term impact. And so we switched kind of to thinking we still do sometimes this here and there a concert because it's still important to give some sort of a regional variety. But we do have our focuses and we try to make what we do, as I said in the beginning, we try to really think of, okay, this is not only a one-time event, there is a follow-up. We try to think of the follow-up, okay, could we do something similar in two years? years or could be something you know with you or with your partner yeah. or with a partner of your partner in three years yeah i was thinking to ask that actually because i know two or three years ago there was the quite a strong connection and i don't know if it was through the bundesverband deutsche galerien it was through them so you had the exchange between berlin and helsinki where you're bringing collectors from finland to berlin and then vice versa taking gallerists and curators and people from berlin to helsinki how has that developed since the initial kind of bringing of everybody together that was also a great example that it was actually us and the ideas <laughs> we've kind of like you know knowing some of the galleries or knowing then this bundesverband De Galerien here in Germany and suggesting this idea. But then it was also them and so to say on the German side, the interest of funding something like that. And we brought this all together. I think the tricky thing there is that it's such a huge difference when we talk about the gallery scene in Finland versus the gallery scene in Germany. Finland's gallery scene is so small, you can count them not on one hand, maybe, yeah. or not on two, but it's very, very small versus mm -hmm. what you have here still yeah. <laughs> in Germany. And then it's also, of course, always the question, what could a collaboration mean between galleries? And it's easier to think of collaborations between Kunstverein and the smaller museum in Finland, for example, that is easier to make something happen. That's, I think, one of the things also that in 100 meetings, 100 emails you write, 100 attempts you make for, you know, bringing people together. And if you get two matches out of it and two actual projects out of it, that's great. And sometimes it takes more than half a year, a year to you or three years until yeah. you have this moment of something coming out of it. Thinking of the lead up to different things and making them happen with the 100 years of Finland. That must have been in planning for quite a few years. Yeah, it was. I mean, from the Finnish side, of course, but also we knew that this mm. is going to be a big event. But then again, big event for Finns. But yeah, who okay. in Germany really noticed that Finland turned 100 years and who cared about yeah. it? So we kind of took it as an opportunity to think of a topic that would be timely. Mm -hmm. And we sat down and thought, okay, Finland is celebrating its home, homeland. And what do home and homeland actually mean in these times when many people are fleeing their home countries, have to flee their homelands? And so there was a starting point to kind of think of a topic. And I think this is a good example for how we like to work, that it's not us exporting some great system or, you know, insights or ideas that Finland have. It's more about really together thinking of global issues of interest and exchanging ideas around it in the topic or when came to this celebrating the homeland so we yeah. had a project where together with Raumlabor Berlin and then another uh, Finnish artist Tuomas Arleitinen they made an installation that looked at what does home mean in mobile time now, I remember the installation I remember the discussion but yeah I guess were you at the opening when we had the opening because the opening reminded me of what you said that it was an opening that was very international yeah. you know like that we really had not the Germans meeting the Finns I mean this was one of the evenings where it felt really 
really great to kind of like give a platform for people meeting from all kinds of different backgrounds. And that's what Berlin is all about. But yeah, still, I think we agree that sometimes we see, oh, the Finnish artists sticking with their Finnish artist groups and the German artists and uh, collectors sticking with the German artist collectors yeah. groups. No, it's true. And I think a reoccurring thing that we've noticed with the third wave of coffee in Berlin mm -hmm. is that when you go to a lot of the places, they're either all from Australia or they're all from New Zealand or they're all from somewhere in the US. And then when you go into the places, you kind of feel like you've gone through a portal and then you're back in your home country because everybody's speaking English and everyone's drinking their flat whites and everything else. But just people from that country, nobody else. You're like, oh, this is, I think we're going to go back outside because this is a bit too surreal at the yeah. moment. Same with a lot of the art ones as well. If it's too regionally specific, then it's only interesting to people from that region. Mm -hmm. And I think definitely when we've built shows at our gallery, I guess we plan a lot of the exhibitions to think what is internationally relevant. We're not bringing things from Australia here and then showing them, but finding things that, are, that we have a commonality between mm -hmm. them so that we've got a shared topics or shared subjects that have a, a universal relevance so that even if you know nothing about the desert, wild animals and things like that, that you can still understand it and take something away. I think the point you made before when people said that being German Finnish, that it was kind of the exotic Finnish thing. I've had similar experiences as well. I said, like, oh, wow, Australia, that's so far away. But then when you present certain contemporary issues, even though I have no idea about that other location, these are all things that I've either witnessed or experienced or I've had exposure to as well. I guess it makes the world feel a bit smaller sometimes. You realize yeah. actually we have a lot more in common than we don't have in common. Yeah, and I think, you know, as a trained ethnologist, again, it's so interesting that it's both. On the one hand, I love to go to Shanghai and be blown away by how things are different. How, mm. how you know, like even the rickshaw driver there is having his mobile pay app and here in Germany, we're still struggling with that. Yes. <laughs> so I think that is kind of crazy. And that's also important to have these yeah. moments that I thought, Shanghai trains has to be very loud and kind of complicated because there's so many people on the move and I felt like stepping in a way into future when I was there so this experience on the one hand that was now more on the technical development side mm -hmm. but it could be also about diversity when it comes to cultural practices how we do food and music and stuff like that but as you said at the same time I think we also kind of like can see that there are many things that we as human beings share no matter where we are mm -hmm. and talking about human rights but also about human needs that people like to be usually or need to be with other people for example that love is something that we all think about uh, friendship for example and I think these kind of a home homeland or as you said desert nature mm -hmm. these are now topics that are very pressing that we think together about these topics yeah definitely I think since living outside of Australia I didn't realize how strong for me personally but other Australians I've spoke to as well I didn't appreciate our, how strong our connection to nature is when we're not living in nature because it's usually just there all the time and then when you're away from it you can feel the hole that's been created or this lack when my wife and I've traveled to different places in Europe we end you usually end up going to the national parks mm -hmm. or we go to the large gardens and other places because we're surrounded by a city we miss this this mm -hmm. connection to the landscape which could be a good segue into the topic that I think you said you got this year which is the connection between humans and nature exactly the interplay between humans and nature and we wanted to bring in the playfulness and not to get it away from the problem and the challenges that we have but to also go through a more positive maybe lens yeah and thinking of 
also playing isn't playing. I, I mean, like when I look at, you know, how the kids play, so they have some rules, right? The rules are there that uh, in a good game or when you're playing with each other, why do you play with each other? Because both want to be having fun. Both yeah. want to be taken serious and both are taking a role in the play. I think that's maybe the point here that as many people have said and written about already is that at the moment we human beings behave not as nature would be an equal partner. Yeah. It's more like us up there and then we take everything that we need. And I guess that's kind of the topic we are just interested in exploring right now by supporting different art projects, also exhibitions, is to see how artists, how have they looked at this topic interplay of human being and nature and how have they portrayed nature or the processes of change when it comes to nature. Is it just within the Finnish Institute in Berlin or is this a kind of a wider subject that's being it's, explored it's a, yeah it's a wider subject and when we we do have sometimes these topics at the Finnish institute when it makes sense we don't like to force a topic and then say you know like and now we only take program in that deals with friendship because then we perhaps would have a very <laughs> small program so yeah but in this case as you can imagine you know when we planned our program last year there were many proposals coming in that independently from each other um, we're all suggesting the topic of nature oh, and okay. of human beings and at the same time we had starting the Friday Free Futures demonstrations and in Finland there has been already for a longer period a quite strong debate on how we can become more sustainable in what we're doing and many great I think also solutions and changes in what people do in their daily lives and so we thought this is a great moment to actually take up this topic and in Lübeck now for example in the Kunst there are the artworks of artists of the Helsinki school that all are dealing with the topic of nature, humans, and the interplay between humans and nature. Yeah, I guess as a cultural institute, is it primarily how artists approach the subject? Or is there a, an overlap with scientists, with anthropologists mm -hmm. and with people from different disciplines? Well, we have now one project that I hope they can still realize this year. We have to see how the world situation is developing, to put it like that. But they are setting out to explore on a research level, researchers from Finland together with researchers from Germany. They venture to the Schwarzwald and they want to really observe through ethnographic fieldwork how people engage in nature. What do people do when they, oh. like you said, you know, yeah, going yeah. to the forest? What do they do and how do they walk through the forest and how do they experience being out there in the nature? Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, a really interesting starting point to kind of look at what you said you know mm -hmm. like you seem to have this uh, you grew up with nature so you now you have the desire to go to nature still mm -hmm. and that's i think similar or applies to many Finns who grow basically up with having nature all around them but what about those who don't grow up with nature who grow up in a big city who yeah. never went to pick mushrooms in the woods what kind of relationship do they have with nature and what do people actually feel or think or say that they get out of it when they move around in nature. Is there a strong attitude towards conservation in Finland? You mean conservation of the nature in that sense? or like Yeah, because if I think about it in Australia, like mm -hmm. as children, it's beaded into us. Mm -hmm. Don't run on the dunes because that will destroy the landscape next to the water <laughs> and don't pick flowers because it will do this. Well, I mean, we have lots of rules. <laughs> yeah, coming to the rules, exactly. <laughs> and then coming to Finland. Usually Finland is also a country with many rules when it comes to public space in a city, for example. But when it comes to nature, you have 
have also this, what is it called now in, I guess you have it in Australia too, probably. But in Finland, you have this Jokamiehen uh, oikeus, and maybe I say it even wrong now in Finnish. But um, the point is, if there is no house inside, you can actually pick berries wherever you want to, or pick mushrooms wherever you want to. Oh, okay. And no matter who whom this wood or area belongs to, I think you can even put up your tent as long as no house is inside. I've heard that for parts of Europe, and I think I've heard it for like for Iceland as yeah. well, which I guess is Europe. Yeah, we I don't think we have that. Because if yeah. you if you set up your tent somewhere, yeah. you'll probably get a policeman or somebody going, why have you set up your tent here? Yeah. This is, I don't know what the differentiation is, but I'd heard, particularly in Scandinavia, mm -hmm. it's the, the right to land or something like that, or yeah. open spaces are there for everybody. So you can park your camper van exactly. and stay. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I have to say I'm not an expert now in exactly <laughs> the rules, but that is more of a point there. And again, we come to this, these numbers or figures or comparisons help that Finland is from its size. I mean, when we just talk how big Finland is as a country, it's bigger than the former um, West Germany. So it's big country you mm -hmm. know like size of course there's ah, the lots mass, of yeah mean. the landmass i mean like the fläche yeah you <laughs> yeah. know yeah the surface of the yeah, this, yeah exactly <laughs> if you take a look at the finnish map there is incredibly lots of water around so that's another kind of experience you feel in finland that you grow up summers for us we're always me and my lake and mm -hmm. then when you go for the first time to this mass tourism beaches even an eastern time to turkey we went with the family and it was like too many people around yeah. you know you can't <laughs> kind of get used to to this uh, uh, masses of people but what i'm just saying is like that it's a big country and then you just have this small population living there so there is enough space basically yeah. for everyone and there is really lots of wood around in finland that has been of course one of them uh, when it comes to economy and so on wood and the trees and the paper they produce out of it for example has been uh, one of the important income yeah definitely i think i've heard that as well when people always point to scandinavia and say look how perfectly i look at all the amazing things and then often and the criticism or the response back is they have a smaller population and managing a smaller number of people is easier than managing a larger number of people. Absolutely. But then you have to say in Germany, the Kehrseite, and that's another thing that you start to understand, you know, like when you buy a magazine in Finland, one of these journals, and they cost on average like something like six, seven, sometimes 10 euros. And I was like, how can they be so expensive when you have in Germany them for a euro for yeah. two? But the point is how many people are buying them you have so many more consumers in germany that your product doesn't have to be great yeah. in order to find enough people <laughs> to buy it and in finland if you only focus on the finnish market you won't get too far and that's the other side of the coin so to say and also the infrastructure to maintain it for the whole country with just a limited number of people paying the taxes versus yeah. in germany you have quite many people paying taxes so yeah i think there are pros and cons of having smaller populations bigger populations yeah i'd not really thought of it like that before um, I've forgotten her name, which is terrible, but now that you've got a young female president or prime mm -hmm. minister? Mm -hmm. Prime minister, you, you call it, Sanna Marin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess, how has that been? Are you surprised that this has happened? Well, I mean, like it came kind of as a surprise. Let's say there were many things happening in the political landscape in Finland. And of course, we are always following them, even though we are here in Germany. And from one day to the other, Finland then had at that time youngest prime minister on earth, so to <laughs> say. The thing is, what is, I think, you know, very interesting with her is that it's not just her being 
young and female, it's that also her colleagues, the other ministers and the other party leaders, they're also young females. Yeah. So I think four of the ministers at the moment are younger than 35 and females. And then that's when I say, okay, then it's not a coincidence. Then you can't yeah, exactly. you know, say this was just one person who got lucky. Then there has to be some larger structures behind it that at least enabled it for this historical political moment that this was possible. Because that has been really noticeable is that we got so many at the embassy but also we at the Finnish Institute we got so many requests for interviews because of really? that really wow I can't remember in the five years that there was ever a similar moment and the same applies obviously also to what happens in Helsinki you know mm -hmm. like that everybody there was in last uh, week's Die Zeit newspaper female pioneers there was a big interview with her yeah so there's really an interest in Sanna Marin and her story Bringing it back to the cultural side of things, I know within the art world, it's already been experiencing something of an existential crisis before this pandemic. Has there been discussion about what's going to happen for the rest of this year? It's a it, it's a good question. I mean, it's probably too early to say, but just... Uh, yeah, it, it's now, I think, what, two weeks, three weeks that we realize it also here in Berlin and then around the world. That's, of course, interesting because we have these different institutes and we are in contact with each other and, you know, writing each other how it looks in the streets of Madrid, for example, mm -hmm. how it feels to be there right now. One of the interesting things is to see that in our case, for example, or in the case, I think, of many of the Finnish institutes, the immediate events we had to cancel because there was no time to do something yeah. different. And that was kind of the spontaneous reaction that we have to cancel things. Um, it started, I think, the kicking point, if you want to say, was the Leipzig Book Fair mm -hmm. when it got cancelled. And that was the sign, okay, this is just the beginning. And so in the beginning, we had to cancel quite a lot of events. But then we kind of realized the longer time it was up to and went, we just, of course, postponed them. Yeah, This is going to be interesting to see that if everything turns out well and in fall, we hopefully have a normal life again here in Europe and we can do things the usual way that it's going to be a really crowded fall because everybody is right now postponing yeah, everything to fall. Exactly. Yeah. September is going to be intense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's, I mean, like one of the things I think we all should be aware of that this might be a competition for audiences. At the same time, maybe people are craving, you know, for going out, for experiencing things really again in a room and not only in the digital way. Having said that, at the same time now, this is a time where, of course, we are thinking of what potential the digital platforms are offering to us. Yeah. So when our mission is, for example, and that's a very small example, but I think this is what a rupture like this is, of course, doing to small-scale institutions like ours, but maybe also to bigger companies. Now we have to be creative and think Absolutely. anew that what can we do in order to achieve our strategic aims. And in our case, for example, so we are here to promote, amongst others, Finnish literature mm. in the German-speaking Europe. And the book fair was cancelled. So what we do now and what we're planning right now is that all the books that we would have presented at the book fair in Leipzig, now our interns are reading them. They are making a book review that they put in the next three weeks. We will have reviews in our Instagram oh, <laughs> account. Okay. Yeah. And that's kind of like a creative way around not reaching our audiences in the physical 
context. Yeah. But then we go digital. And we had this idea for this project already a bit longer, but we never had the time. So now is the time to actually do this kind of things. In the long run, I think it will be very interesting to see how now we all experience that out of a sudden, you know, like it started with, do we go to a meeting in Vienna? Well, how important is that meeting? Of course, it would be nice to, to meet the people and it's always, you know, fruitful, the discussions, but at the current situation, no, we don't go. And so this has been, I think, with all of us now, of course, we have canceled all kinds of things. And in some cases, as you said earlier on, in some cases, this might really hurt because it would have been a lifetime opportunity. But in some cases, we maybe we have to think more often, is it really important to meet in person? Mm -hmm. Or could we do it with Teams, Skype? Everybody is testing them right now and getting used to them. Yeah, And that's interesting, I think, to see what is the long-term impact. Well, it reminded me a little bit of when the volcano mm. erupted a few years ago mm. and that grounded a lot of flights and that really pushed Skype to the limit because everybody still had to go to their meetings but they couldn't fly to anywhere so like okay well we need to this has to happen now so exactly. what can we do that really tested the capabilities but I think even in these last couple of weeks I've seen a lot more programs be tested mm -hmm. and a lot more different ways of communicating online I think the art world in particular is quite notorious for being maybe slow to adapt mm -hmm. Because when I saw somebody had written something about the online viewing rooms at Art Basel. Yeah, yeah, I saw it. <laughs> yeah, the website was like one from 1998 or yeah. something. I always knew that the art world was a bit slow to adopt. But when the biggest international art fair in the world has a website that looks like it's from 20 years ago, like the situation that we're in is going to reveal a lot of flaws and a lot of areas that we do need to improve. Yeah, and I think at the same time, for example, I saw last week the Finnish, I think it's called in English National Museum, Ateneum, they posted online that you can look at their mini videos. I think they are five minutes long of artworks. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if they really produced it that quickly or if they had it anyways in the pipeline or if this was already there for a long time and just now they started promoting it. But the point was I really liked they had one clip Helene Schärfbeck and one of her paintings and it was so nicely done this five minutes of diving into the history of this painting diving into the biography of Helena looking at it from my iPhone I think that the only problem right now is and this might be because I'm working in the position as a director my husband also working in in the safety health management field answering all the time calls and then us being here in home office with the kids who don't really have from the german schools any proper online schooling mm -hmm. what i'm trying to say is that at the moment i don't really have the feeling that i would have more time to look at stuff like that yeah but then i think of some others who are also now working home office but maybe really have usually the time in the evening where they would meet friends mm -hmm. where they would go to a museum exhibition and for those I think when they get used to instead of just only looking you know like one of these online tv series if they would go to that kind of a platform I think that might be an opportunity, not only we are now talking about what the art world, for example, or the cultural world should do, but also for the user, right? I mean, like that's yeah. kind of the thing. If we demand online streaming of concerts, but nobody is consuming them. Exactly. And, and not even in these times, then we just have to confess it and say, obviously, people are not interested in listening to a music concert on online streaming. And I hope that this is not the result of a testing that they're doing, <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know, like that if 
if in these times people don't, the consumers, the people we try to engage with, I think then, then it might be really difficult to reach them in other times with the digital. Exactly, yeah. There was something I saw about that with museums in particular, that a lot of museums were live streaming and they were doing a lot of these different programs and alternative ways of bringing content to people because people can't physically go to the museums. But then if nobody wants them, mm. that does put a big question mark over the purpose of them now. Yeah. And I have to say, I mean, like now, this is now a very personal observation from consuming Instagram and Twitter and so on. But the examples from the art world and from what museums did, what I liked the most was not trying to show me a whole exhibition because I really hope that I still get a chance to see the Monet exhibition at Barberini Museum. Oh, I saw the poster for that. Today, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not interested in walking virtually through the whole exhibition. But what I like, what I saw from one curator friend who works at the National Art Museum in Stockholm and what he did and what also from the Brüher Museum, the director there, what they did, they picked one painting and then they took a picture of this painting on Instagram and then in the next one they took a detail of it and they said, look at this painting, that's the history, that's the mm -hmm. context and this detail, isn't it funny? And I thought, okay, this left me with the kind of gift of now I have one painting more in my life, in my head and the details to it and that's something I can consume. That's how I think also social media works. It's rather quick. Don't even try to sell me a whole exhibition tour there. That's my personal. Yeah, no, I kind of feel a bit the same and that hopefully through this experience of not being able to go and do everything, when we do have the time that we slow down. I think yesterday or the day before when I saw a few books on my shelf, I thought, I can finally read those now. Yeah, maybe on the weekend, just not go online because I've been online the entire week. That's the thing. That's the thing. I think, you know, all this kind of what we talk about entschleunigen, it doesn't help if we still hang on our phones because we need to get the latest corona news, so to say. And in a way, I mean, like we just talked about it now, we are all just waiting for Berlin to do the lockdown as well. And everybody's just kind of waiting for that news, I feel. And everybody's hanging on the news and <laughs> okay, what is, uh, you know, allowed now and what now? Sometimes I feel like maybe it would help to make it more radical because then I would know, you know, and now the most radical measurements have been done and there's nothing I can and should and have to check online anymore. Yeah, you don't, you're not constantly waiting to think, oh, what's going to happen tomorrow? Because yeah. I was thinking, okay, maybe after the weekend, they'll look back, they'll evaluate and then decide, okay, now we're going to do this or mm. you've not taken it seriously enough so now you can't come out of your houses. Mm. But yeah. we don't know. Every day it's like, oh, what's going to happen tomorrow? We have to wait and see. But I think the creation Creativity is, again, you know, one of the key words in these times and adaptability, you know, how people can adapt to working in the home office. How can we become creative in finding solutions of let our time pass? And I think that is very different. You know, I talked to my mom and she's now in the middle of Finland and she's living there in her house at her lake. And I think she really has to see an effort to meet people. So <laughs> when I said to her, yeah, and you're staying in, right? And she said, why should should I stay in? There's nobody out there anyways. Of course, as a village, they agreed not to visit each other now anymore. But for her, this quarantine thing is not so tricky because there's so much space around her. But think about all of us sitting now in Berlin yeah. in small apartments at the worst with any balcony access or something. And what do you do then? I mean, like that's a very different kind of experience of the lockdown than versus on the countryside. Yeah, my parents are out in the country. Mm -hmm. So they're like, oh, we can still go out in the garden we can do yeah. I don't think anything has really changed for them except when they go to the supermarket but 
in a city can need fresh air. I need mm. to be outside. We also need social interaction. And yeah. like how you were saying at the start, there's certain universal themes. As animals, as humans at a primate level, we need contact with each other. Otherwise, yeah. we also go a bit nutty because we're not socializing. Yeah. And I think this is one of, I read, it was just a kind of a coincidence, but I read this one book that also deals with a virus, a sleeping virus. I think it's called The Sleepwalkers. <laughs> and she wrote, I mean, like I just happened to read it now when all this started. Of course, there were many parallels and she wrote in one of the chapters she wrote what this virus is taking away from us as people is one of the things that is the dearest to us namely the contact shaking hands um, hugging each other and now for example on my whatsapp now the discussions um, friends asking me what should they do should they really not bring their daughters to their grandparents because that's the rule right now or that's yeah. the advice that has been given but it's one thing of not doing it for a week or two but people who have maybe set up the whole life around these contacts and live close to each other. You know, for me, the temptation is not so big. They are so far away and I'm used to, and our whole family is used anyways to do the Skype, FaceTime, WhatsApp thing. But in their cases, that's really the question of how do you define love? Is love in these times that you verzichtest, that you're not going to those that you love because you want to protect them? Yeah, I've seen a few different people saying about that. They're really concerned about their parents and grandparents but they're worried that if they go and see them they could potentially infect them and then they could become ill as a result exactly. of them wanting to make sure that they're okay mm. and you have this real pull in either direction mm. that I want to do the right thing and I need to look after them but in looking after them I'm probably going to make it worse Yeah, and yeah that's really something that a lot of us are going to have to contend with yeah. for the next few months at least. Yeah, it will be a very traumatic experience. I think one very historic moment as it is not only in one country as it has this kind of global dimension as well. It was a really nice conversation and a lot of food for thought for Denkanstoss for our German-speaking listeners. If you're curious about the book centered around a sleepwalking virus that Lara mentioned, the title is The Dreamers by Karen Thompson Walker. As always, I've provided links in the show notes to the topics that we spoke about, together with the relevant social media, so that you can follow us and stay up to date. Please feel free to reach out if you'd like to know more about this or any of the previous episodes of the podcast. And a huge thank you to our regular listeners who have been sending in their feedback. I'm happy to hear that you've been enjoying the show. That's everything for now. The next episode will be up in two weeks' time. Until then, take care. My name is Michael Dooney. And you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.